This evening we're resuming our studies in the Psalms. Uh, tonight it's Psalm 16. But before we turn to the Psalm, let's turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading at verse 22. We're breaking into the Apostle Peter's sermon in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Amen and may God bless to us that reading from his word. Shall we turn now to the book of Psalms, Psalm 16. The Psalms are ideally suited to corporate worship. So can I suggest that we read the psalm together as a congregation? Psalm 16. You'll find it on page 453 of the Bibles. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land... They are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. 
The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Shall we come before the Lord in prayer? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words we have read, written some 3,000 years ago. We believe that they are your word. And we ask that as we study this passage together, you would help me to be faithful and that you would grant each one of us an open heart and a will that is prepared to obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Where do you find security? What's the focus of your life? What gives your life meaning and purpose? What grounds do you have for hope? These are all questions which are worth asking in the light of this psalm. The psalm is attributed to David, the shepherd boy who went on to become a great king of Israel. It begins with a prayer, preserve me, O God, as David asks God to preserve his life. But the psalm is more than simply a prayer for God's protection. It reads more like David's testimony as to his present faith and his future hope. Whatever dangers he may be aware of, David isn't praying in desperation. He's praying with quiet confidence because he has found in God his greatest good. And he's convinced that not even death itself can rob him of fellowship with God. Let's consider, first of all, what this psalm meant to David when he wrote it. I think it's fair to say that the psalm is rooted in David's experience in a particular situation. We don't know exactly what that was. And it's worth noting that David isn't seeking refuge in God for the first time. God is already his refuge, just as he is already his Lord. David is praying to God as an established believer. He knows God intimately. 
and he trusts him implicitly. That's why he's confident his life is safe in God's hands. He has already experienced the Lord's grace and help in numerous ways, and so he's convinced he will not let him go now or in the future. Three things are worth highlighting at this point. The first is that David's language is black and white. What do I mean by that? Well, look at some of the things he says. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Can any believer honestly say that he or she has no good apart from God, that God is all that matters to him or her. Isn't that a bit unrealistic? Then there's verse 8. David writes, I have set the Lord always before me. Really, David? How does that statement square with other things we know about him? After all, the Bible acknowledges that David was a sinner. Just think of his involvement with Bathsheba. She was another man's wife. But David went ahead and committed adultery with her. And when she discovered she was pregnant, he arranged for her husband to be killed in battle. How realistic then are David's comments about himself? Well, I think that what David is articulating here is his aspirations as a believer. He's describing his essential mindset, his core convictions. As a believer, he knows in his heart of hearts that God is his highest good and he wants to live in a way that pleases him even though his achievements may not always match his aspirations. If you're a Christian here this evening, I suspect that you know something of that tension too. The Apostle John writes, By this we know that we have come to know Jesus Christ, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Perfected. Christians, says John, keep Christ's commandments. Christians keep Christ's word. But elsewhere, John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when John says that Christians keep Christ's commandments, he doesn't mean we keep them perfectly. What he's saying is that obedience to God is an essential hallmark of the Christian life. Christians obey God. It's what we try to do if we're Christians at all, even though we don't do so perfectly. And when we sin, that bothers us deeply. 
because sin is a contradiction of who we really are. That's the first thing. The second thing I'd like to highlight is this. David isn't trying to impress God in the hope that God will answer his prayer. He isn't, as it were, listing his good deeds for God's benefit. He's not reporting progress. No, the aspirations he expresses reflect the fact that he already belongs to God's family. His appeal is based not on his own merits, but on what he knows of God's grace and faithfulness. God has already shown him mercy. And so as a member of his family, David appeals to him to keep him safe and preserve his life. The third thing I'd like to highlight is the the future hope which David expresses in the final verses of the psalm, verses 9 to 11. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There are relatively few references to life beyond the grave in the pages of the Old Testament. That makes what David says here all the more remarkable. At one level, David's words may be rooted in his conviction that God will not let him meet an untimely end. We don't know the historical circumstances in which the psalm was written. It may possibly express the confidence which sustained David during his months as an outlaw that he would not be delivered into the hand of King Saul. But there's more than mere physical survival in the short term in what David says. Look how he speaks of fullness of joy in God's presence and of pleasures which are to be enjoyed at God's right hand forevermore. It looks as if David has at least some awareness of life beyond death. So here in Psalm 16 we have a prayer evoked by David's particular circumstances in which he asks the Lord to preserve his life. He prays with confidence because he's a believer. On the basis of all he has experienced of God, he's convinced he can commit himself into his hands. And as generations of Old Testament saints subsequently sang these words, they too must have entrusted themselves, their present and their future, into the hands of their covenant-keeping God. So secondly, let's consider what this psalm means in relation to Jesus. We read the passage in Acts 2. 
which is part of the sermon which the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. That was shortly after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Peter is at pains to explain to his hearers who Jesus is and what he has done. He tells them how Jesus was crucified, but was raised from the dead because death could not hold him. He quotes verses 8 to 11 of this psalm and goes on, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. You see, Peter's argument goes like this. In the psalm, David speaks of not being abandoned to the grave. He speaks of his body not being left to decompose. But the fact was that David died and was buried. The Jews of the first century knew where David's tomb was. So David's words cannot have found their ultimate fulfillment in his own experience. The words he wrote about the conquest of death and the fullness of life were fulfilled only in the experience of his illustrious descendant, Jesus. It's not just uh, Peter who quotes the words of this psalm in the book of Acts and applies them to Jesus. Paul does the same when he speaks in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. We thus have two apostles bearing witness to the fact that the closing verses of this psalm are fully fulfilled only in Jesus. I, I don't think we need to assume that David was making a deliberate and conscious prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus which was fully intelligible to himself. The Old Testament prophets often spoke wiser than they knew. They didn't fully understand what they were saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What Peter and Paul are saying is that there's a layer of meaning in these final verses which makes sense, ultimate sense, only in relation to the resurrection of Jesus. And if that's the case, and it must be because of the apostolic witness, Jesus could equally well appropriate the rest of the psalm too. The black and white expressions which we looked at earlier would fit him perfectly. He was truly sinless. He lived in unbroken fellowship with his heavenly Father. It was to do his Father's will that he came into this world in the first place. He could say without qualification or reservation, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. 
and having lived a sinless life in conformity to the Father's will, he had every reason to be confident that he would be delivered from death itself. So we can read this psalm not just with reference to David, but also in relation to Jesus. It reflects his determination to do the Father's will in dependence on divine grace and his confidence, even in the face of the cross, that he would be raised to life again. What the psalm meant to David, what it means in relation to Jesus. Let's consider thirdly what this psalm means for us today. If we are Christians, we are united to Jesus by faith. We can therefore read, sing, and pray this psalm in and with Jesus in the light of all that he is and all that he has done. Because he lived the life we should have lived before dying the death we deserve to die. His life is our life. His death is our death. And because he defeated death and rose again, we too shall be raised to eternal life. His resurrection is the guarantee of ours. There's only one way to be made right with God. Nothing we do will get us into heaven. We cannot, as it were, work our passage to heaven. Only perfe perfection will pass muster with a holy God. And in Jesus... Perfection has been provided for us. If we trust in him, his righteousness is put to our account. That's what the Apostle Paul says. As by the one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. God the Father sees us in his Son. We are accepted in Jesus. And it is in Jesus we rejoice in the hope of eternal life. So this psalm reminds us not just of David, but of great David's greater son and of all that he achieved through his life, death, and resurrection for us and for our salvation. But I think the psalm is capable of further application to us as Christians. Remember, David wrote this psalm as a believer. This psalm, therefore, has things to say to us about how we, too, should live as believers. And if the psalm can be applied to Jesus, 
Not only is the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us, put to our account, if we are Christians, righteousness should increasingly characterize our lives. We should be becoming more righteous. We should be becoming more like the Lord Jesus. After all, we're born again, we've a new nature, we're indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, we're adopted into God's family. All these things mean that we should live differently. Many years ago, when I was a student, the evangelist Michael Green brought out a book on this subject, and he gave it a very good title, New Life, New Lifestyle. You see, the new life we have received as Christians should be reflected in a new lifestyle. And in this respect, Psalm 16 challenges us as to how we are living out the life of faith. Let's look a little more closely at five things which characterize David's life as a believer. Number one, David finds his security in God. Preserve me, O God, he says, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. It was the Lord who gave David stability and security in a world of change. It was the Lord who gave meaning and purpose to his life. David recognized that the Lord was his ultimate good. Now, I'm sure David appreciated his friends and family and the material comforts he enjoyed. But he didn't focus on these things. These blessings ultimately came from God. And David focused not on the gifts, but on the giver. Do you find that challenging? I know I do. I suspect that most of us, if we were honest, would have to admit we rely a lot on people and things rather than the Lord. And they may be good things. Perhaps it's our family. Perhaps it's our friends. Perhaps it's our own abilities. Perhaps it's our bank balance. These are all good. But none of them is an ultimate good. Only the Lord is 100% reliable. He doesn't change. And he promises never to leave us or forsake us. So where do you find your security? In the Lord or in his blessings? David challenges us not to stop at the blessings, but to make the Lord our refuge. That was number one. Number two, David chooses the company of God's people. Look at what he says in verses three and four. 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David rates those who honour God. And he refuses to have anything to do with idolatry. He chooses his friends carefully. He knows that godly friends will encourage him in his faith. And he's also aware that close involvement with those who don't share his faith may unsettle his commitment to the Lord. I wonder if that's a challenge you need to heed. How wise are you in your choice of friends? It's a good question for all of us, but it's especially relevant for the young folk. Your friends may be nice people, they may be fun to be with, but do they encourage you to compromise your standards in particular situations? Our society is becoming increasingly secular. People worship idols of all kinds. And it's hard to be a consistent Christian. All the more reason to choose our friends wisely. Over the years, I have found it a tremendous blessing to have close friends who share my faith, who inspire me, and who encourage me to keep on keeping on in the Christian life. Number two, David chooses his friends wisely. Number three, David is content with God and what he provides for him. Verses five and six. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The terms portion, lot, lines, and inheritance have to do with the apportionment of land. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he promised to rescue the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and bring them to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When in due course the Israelites entered Canaan, the land was allocated among the various tribes by lot. That may well be the picture which David has in mind here. In fact, he may be alluding to the provision which was made for one particular tribe, the tribe of Levi. The Levites were responsible for the services in the tabernacle and later the temple. They were given no land. Instead, they were supported by the tithes which the other tribes set aside for the Lord. In Numbers chapter 20, the Lord says of the Levites, I am your portion. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. I like Andrew Bonner's comment on that verse. He says, The other tribes had a rich inheritance. Levi had a rich God. Verse 
The other tribes had a rich inheritance. Levi had a rich God. And here David is thanking God for all that he means to him. He thanks God for his lot in life. He recognizes that it's the Lord who orders the circumstances of his life. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. But David is thankful most of all for the Lord himself, who is his chosen portion and his cup. That's challenging, isn't it? How often do we thank God for the blessings he gives us? And most of all, for the privilege of knowing him. That's something a healthy Christian will do. And of course, there are times when life is difficult. And we find it hard to say that the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. But even then, we can draw encouragement from the fact that our lives are in God's hands. That he knows what he's doing, even if we don't. And that in all things, he is at work for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Number four, David delights in God's presence. Verses seven and eight. I bless the Lord, he writes, who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. David meditates on God's word. He reflects on it even in the night. He sets the Lord before him. He follows him and he seeks his help. He lives in the good of all that God is. Is that true of you? Is it true of me? Do we delight in God's presence? Finally, number five. David rejoices at the prospect of eternal life. David does so in the light of his experience of God here and now. In the light of all that he has experienced of God in this life, he yearns to know more of God and to enjoy him forever. Can I ask you if you are living now in such a way that the prospect of eternal life fills you with joy? Because if we don't enjoy fellowship with God in this life, we shall not relish the prospect of life in God's nearer presence forever. And there's a sense in which God's grace, experienced by believers, is glory begun below. Five characteristics of David's life of faith. Five characteristics of the righteous lifestyle he pursued. 
And let's not forget that David knew far less of God and of his purposes than we do. And yet his devotion puts us to shame. Note too how there's an obvious intentionality about what David does. He will not take the names of other gods on his lips. He sets the Lord before him. He chooses to go God's way. He consciously follows the Lord. There's nothing haphazard or half-hearted about how David goes about things. He makes deliberate choices. In the same way, the Christian life requires effort and intentionality. The Christian life is not a case of let go and let God. We have to do our bit. We need to work out our salvation. But we can do that only by God's grace. As we play our part, God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's only on the basis of Christ's righteousness we are made right with God. But if we have been made right with God, we ought to be becoming more righteous in practice. How can we tell if we are? I suggest we should ask ourselves if we share the hallmarks of the life of faith as they are set out for us in this psalm. These are interesting and important areas to consider in relation to ourselves. This psalm was rooted in the experience of David, but it speaks, speaks to us of the Lord Jesus, and it challenges us as to how we are living as believers in what we like to call the real world. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, we thank you that we are accepted in the Lord Jesus if our trust is in him. And yet we recognize our responsibility to work out our salvation and to become more like the Lord Jesus in practice. We pray that we may heed the challenge of your word. May we cast ourselves unreservedly on your mercy. May we seek your grace. So may we live here and now in such a way that we can look forward with confidence to that life which lies beyond the grave, that life which is characterized by pleasures at your right hand forevermore. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.